Galatians 3 this morning and 4, you can turn there in your Bibles, beginning uh, chapter 3, verse 27. When I was in middle school and high school, I was not a good student at all. Uh, Not because I tried hard and failed, but because I did not try hard. I was the kid who would often show up to high school, you know, to a class in, in, in high school and be reminded upon walking in about a homework assignment that I had crumpled up and put in my locker the day before, and I would run to my locker and uncrumple it and write some answers down on the way to class and turn it in and hope it was a, you know, a good enough grade to pass. And any sort of assigned reading in middle school or high school, I just didn't do. I just did not read the books. What I did occasionally do was read Spark Notes. And I would, you know, read these paragraph summaries of each chapters and character analysis and hope that it would be enough. Uh, for me to fool the teacher into thinking that I should get a good grade on the pop quiz or whatever. And usually that didn't work. But over time, uh, I did become a reader. Really, after I graduated high school, I started reading books by C.S. Lewis and similar authors and became an avid reader. And the more that I read, the less that I felt the need to use anything like Spark Notes. I wasn't reading uh, Spark Notes so that I could pass a quiz or a test. I was just reading books to learn and to enjoy them. And so I thought, you know, I, obviously I have no use of this anymore. But curiously, as time passed uh, and I read more books, I have a penchant just Maybe it's my personality type. I want you all to think that I'm uh, more impressive than I am. I try to read classics, classic novels, big books. And uh, I realized the more that I read them, the less equipped I am to understand them on my own. And there was a book that I, a classic that I was reading for the second time. And the first time I just knew I didn't really get out of it what I could have. And so the second time I used Spark Notes. And, you know, you would read and maybe you take a week off reading and you go back and, okay, I'm going to refresh myself with this chapter summary. Or you get halfway through the book and you hear a character's name and you think, okay, like, I remember that name from earlier in the book, but I have no clue who he is, so I'm going to go back and read about them in Spark Notes. And I found it to be very helpful. Similarly, Galatians 3.27 through 4.7, we're going to be today serves as a kind of Spark Notes summary of the entire gospel, the entire doctrine of salvation. The gospel and and what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Christ is big. It's long. We could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. We could, you know, take endless classes trying to delve further into the depths of salvation. But Paul gives us in these 10 or so verses a sort of summary of salvation. And he tells us four things about our salvation. First, what we're saved from, mending all these phrases and prepositions. Sorry if that bothers you. One, what we're saved from. Two, whom we're saved by. Three, what we're saved for. And four, the experience of salvation. So those will be the four points of this morning's sermon. Turn with me, if you haven't, to Galatians 3, beginning in verse 27. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
This is the word of the Lord. We spent the last two weeks on one verse at a time thinking about what it means to be in Christ. We saw that salvation means that by grace through faith we are united to Christ. We become one with him so that what is true of him becomes true of us. By means, last week we saw, by means of being united to him, we also become united with everybody else who is united to him regardless of race or class or gender. And this morning we see in verse 29 that Paul says, If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, ideally, you want to be able to preach standalone sermons, but there's so much in Galatians that you're building on week after week. And if you recall, in previous weeks, we saw that Paul talks about this concept of the promise to Abraham and Abraham's seed, who's going to be the beneficiary of all these promises that God made to Abraham. And Paul makes this big deal about the fact that seed is singular, The offspring is singular. It refers to one person. It refers to Jesus Christ. And now Paul's saying that because by faith we are united with him, we become one with him, we become Abraham's seed and offspring, which means that we are God's children and God's heirs. But, Paul says, the experience of an heir during childhood is really no different than the experience of a slave or a servant during childhood. When the heir is just a kid, he's not an authority. He's under authority. He has guardians. He has tutors who get to boss him around and and do whatever they want. And it's not until the time when he comes of age, the age appointed by his father, that he receives the inheritance. And Paul is saying the same is true for us. When we were children, he says we were in slavery under the elements of the world until when? Until Christ came. Paul is saying that historically speaking, There was a time in the world before Christ came that that people lived prior to the coming of Christ. And those who lived prior to the coming of Christ lived in slavery. And what does he say they were in slavery to? To the elements of the world. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. Uh, What does that mean? There's a couple, uh, couple different translations of the word elements there. The first is that it's basically the ABCs. It's the basic principles. Think elementary school, right? So it it could be that Paul is saying something like the law is the sort of elementary principle of God, but then you grow up into grace, you grow up into the gospel. The second option is that he's referring to, and this is the the official uh, dictionary definition, transcendent powers that are in control over the events of the world. Talking about spiritual powers and beings that are in control over the way that things play out in the world. You, you can hear these phrases from scripture. Paul saying that, you know, the world is under the sway of the prince of the power of the air and the principalities and powers. And Jesus himself says that the world is under the control of Satan, the spiritual enemy. And it seems that since Paul returns to this idea in verse eight, he says, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not gods. That seems to imply that maybe some people think they are gods. So it seems like this second definition is the one that he's talking about. But that creates a problem for us because we saw in chapter 3 that the slavery that Paul is talking about is slavery to the law, which was given by God, which is a good thing. And now he's saying you're enslaved to Satan and to demons. So how does, how does that work? Satan didn't give the law. The law is not a bad thing. The law is a good thing. It was given by God. So, so what is Paul saying? What he's saying is that what God gave for humanity's good, namely the law, Satan twisted and used for evil. 
John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, says, God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Remember, we preached a whole sermon on the law's purpose is to expose our sin and lead us to call out for mercy to God. So he says, that's what God intended the law to do, but Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive people to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty, but Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving people into believing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. But there is an escape. How? Verse 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. There was a time, Paul saying, when Christ had not come into the world and everybody lived under slavery, but then Christ did come into the world to bring freedom and liberation from that slavery. And what is true historically, what is true globally of all humanity is true of every single person. We come into the world and we're enslaved to sin and there's a time when Christ has not yet come into our lives. The question for you to reflect on even five minutes into the sermon, is, are you still there? Are you still enslaved to the law? Are you still enslaved to Satan condemning you by the law? Are you still living under the unbearable pressure to perform well enough, to earn God's approval, or to earn the approval and the acceptance of other people? Or have you been set free of that? That's what Jesus came to free you from, and that is what, Christian, you have been saved from Who have you been saved by? The best adventure stories and movies, in my opinion, are ones where there's not one, you know, obvious superhero who comes in and does everything by himself or herself, but the ones where people work together, right? So there's a reason why the Avengers movies were like a bigger deal than just the individual one-off Iron Man movies or Hulk movies or whatever. And I think often of that scene in Endgame where they're in like their, their compound where they're about to fight the last battle and they're like, okay, this is your job and that's your job and that's your job. And if we all do our jobs correctly, we might have a chance of pulling this off. Or you can think of uh, Lord of the Rings, right? When, when the fellowship is first formed and you have some people, uh, some, some men, you have uh, a dwarf and an elf and you have some hobbits and you have a wizard and they don't always like work together well, but they're coming together for this one purpose. Or you think of Star Wars, just to keep going with the classics. The, the original Star Wars, when they're, they're in that you know, bunker and the famous line about, you know, many, many brave people died to bring you these plans. And it's like, if we all do our part, we can blow up the Death Star and free uh, the, the universe. Uh, in all of those stories, people are working together to accomplish something. And it turns out that the gospel is not so dissimilar from that. And this gets us into actually the most fundamental and foundational doctrine that Christians believe, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. The next five or six minutes, I want you to put your theology caps on, maybe lean forward in your pew. Uh, The Trinity is the most basic and essential doctrine for the Christian life. It is actually the Trinity that sets us apart as Christians from every other religion in the world. You say, I thought it was the teachings of Jesus. Well, a lot of other people have taught really good stuff too. Uh, is he unique? Yes, of course. But there are other people who have taught great things. You say, I, I, I thought it was the gospel that sets us apart from every other world religion. Okay, but without the Trinity, as I hope you're going to see in a minute, we can't even have the gospel. The Trinity, to, to 
sum it up at its most basic, means that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three have one common, undivided essence or being. They are one being, and yet they retain their distinct personhood. God, triune God, has eternally existed in a perfect relationship of self-giving love as the Father overflows into the Son in the bond of the Holy Spirit. Why does this matter? Let me see if I can illustrate, for, illustrate it for you. Um, one of the most popular sayings of Christianity is that God is love. That's a Bible verse, right? And you're not going to, if you walk out to any restaurant in East Nashville for lunch after church and you say God is love, you're not going to offend a single person, right? But what does it actually mean that God is love? I would suggest to you that if God is not a trinity, God cannot be love, that it would be impossible. Take the, the two most common conceptions of God. One is that God is a single personal God, not a trinity. The other is that God is, is more of an it than a he. He's just kind of a force or an energy that binds all things together. If God is just a single personal God, then what would it mean for that God to be love? One, it could mean that he's a complete egomaniac, and he has spent eternity past looking into the cosmic mirror mirror on the wall, asking who's the greatest of them all. Or it could mean that he's weak and needy, right? If his, you could say, well, no, his love doesn't have to be directed at himself. It could be directed at others. Well, then he needs us, and he creates us not to give us anything, but to take from us, to fill himself up because he's so weak and needy that he needs you to love him. And you know, if you've ever been in a dating relationship or a marriage with somebody who needs you, they crush you, right? That's a crushing relationship. And God would be doing the same thing to us. On the other hand, if God is just a sort of energy or force, he can't be loved because he's not a person. Love is personal. You go outside and the wind blows on your face and it feels nice, but it doesn't love you. <laughs> God can only be love because he is a trinity. God is love because at the heart of God is a father eternally pouring out his love into the son in the bond of the Holy Spirit. And just as in the very life of God himself, these, there are three persons that are distinct personally and yet cannot be separated so in all of God's actions toward us, the three persons of the Trinity perform their unique functions even while the one God is acting in an undivided way. We see that actually in this text. So look, look back at the text with me. One, where do we see the Father in this text? It says, when the time came to completion, verse 4, God sent. God here is referring to God the Father, and it's saying that when his eternally appointed time, according to his unchanging will, came to pass, the, the gospel is his plan A, it's always been his plan A from eternity past, and when his appointed time came, he sent his son into the world. Now that's really important because it is the thing that makes the father the father that he sends the son, and not the other way around. I'm going to give you a big theological term. It is the eternal generation of the Son, or the eternal begottenness of the Son. And what it means is that from eternity past, the Son is receiving his life from the Father. The Father is forever giving life to the Son. And so it is fitting that as it relates to us, the Father would send his Son into the world. 
And once he comes, what does that son do? Where do we see the son in this text? It says, the one sent, the son, was born of a woman, meaning the eternal son of God came and took on human flesh, added a human nature to himself without losing a drop of his divinity. And he was born under the law, meaning he was born in the same circumstances we're born in, yet without sin. And because he lived the perfect life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die, he took our curse so that we could have his blessing. He redeemed us, Paul says, from the law. And what, is that, what does that do for us? So among other things, verse 5, it gives us adoption as sons. I'm going to come back to that. Third, we also see the Spirit in this text. Verse 6, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes it clear that the sending of the Holy Spirit comes both from the Father and the Son. And so, Again, this is fitting because the thing that makes the Spirit the Spirit is that unlike the Son, he's not eternally begotten of the Father, but he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son so that in relation to us, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And where do they send him? They don't, they don't merely send him into the world at large. They send him, Paul says, into our hearts now, I know that felt like drinking from a fire hose probably, but I hope that you see that so much of the beauty and glory and wonder of salvation is missed when we just blandly speak of a sort of vanilla God who saves us. When we see the beauty of Father and Son and Spirit working together in their distinct roles to bring about our salvation, to bring us into sonship, the gospel becomes so much more beautiful. And that gets us to the third point. What are we saved for? We're saved for sonship. Now, in my childhood, uh, my church background, I grew up in a church that really emphasized what we're saved from. And I distinctly recall that a big part of the reason that I wanted to become a Christian was so that I didn't go to hell when I died. And in fact, I remember maybe a year or so after I became a Christian, uh, I was probably eight years old at this time, encouraging a friend of mine to also become a Christian. And I told him, I think we were in like a Sunday night or Wednesday night service, and there were these little pamphlets in the back of our pews, like uh, the ones that are in front of you here probably. And I said, hey, if you just check this little box and put it in the offering plate, then you can talk to somebody and you'll be baptized and you won't have to go to hell when you die. Uh, Is there an element of truth to that? Yeah, we are saved from something. But it's so reductionistic. The Bible spends way more time emphasizing what we're saved for than what we're saved from. And here we see it in this concept of sonship. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that, there's a purpose for it, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Contrary to popular belief, everybody is not a son or daughter of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, John says very clearly, to those who receive Christ, he gives them the right to become children of God. Being born in the flesh doesn't make you a child of God. Being born again in the Spirit makes you a child of God. Why? Because Jesus is the unique Son of God, and as we saw, salvation means being united to Him such that when the Father sees us, He sees Christ. He sees His Son. We become His sons through Christ. And there are two massive implications of this. The first 
is that God loves you in Christ with the very same love with which he loves his only begotten son. God loves you in Christ with the very same love with which he loves Jesus. Some of you, maybe the other 31 minutes of the sermon can just go in one ear and out the other, and what you need to hear is that you are loved by God with the same eternal and infinite and unchanging and unfluctuating love with which God the Father has from eternity past loved his Son. In both quantity and quality, there is no difference, Christian, in God's love for you and his love for his Son. He doesn't love the cleaned up version of you. He doesn't just love the church version of you. The, the moment this week when you thought to yourself, I'm at my worst and I'm embarrassing and I'm embarrassed at myself and this is so humiliating and this is so shameful and I feel so guilty, that is when God loves you as much as he loves his son. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, this is how we know that God loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when you got your act together, not when you went to church, but while you were at your worst. And if you have that love, you have everything that your soul desires at the deepest level. Everything that you have looked for in a partner or in work or in your performance in school or your job or whatever, everything that you have ever tried to gain and accomplish for yourself, you already have because you have the infinite love of the person whose opinion means more than everything else in the world put together. Second implication is that you are God's son. Now, I just said the implication of being God's son is that you are God's son. The, the emphasis is on the word son. You may be thinking here, why aren't Paul and Taylor being more gender inclusive? Uh, the reason is because Paul is intentional in his use of the word son. In Paul's day, daughters were not heirs. Sons were heirs. And in fact, he's being remarkably inclusive because he's just said, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, you are all in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you're God's sons. You're God's heirs. You are going to receive an inheritance from God. And just pause for a rhetorical question. What belongs to God? Everything. <laughs> Everything belongs to God. If you are God's heir, what do you want that you won't one day get? If you are God's heir, what could you lose in this life that you won't either one day get back or that the losing of it won't make you better? The whole of creation belongs to God and you are God's heir. So why fear? Why worry? Why be anxious about your circumstances, about your life, if you're God's heir and you're going to receive everything from him? Let's be honest. We don't live like either of these things are true of us. How many of us really experience this on an ongoing basis? You don't. <laughs> you know you don't. I don't. You don't live like God loves you with the same love that he has for his son. If you did, you wouldn't overreact and get defensive every time your spouse says something critical of you. If you lived like God loved you as much as he loves his son, you would confess your sins and not hide them in darkness. You would bring them out into the light. And you would confess them because you know, God can't love me. He can't think any more or less of me 
because of this sin. (laughs) You wouldn't feel so ashamed and guilty all the time. You wouldn't need your career to go well. You wouldn't need a spouse. You wouldn't need your parents' approval. You wouldn't need your kids to like you. And you don't live like God's heir. Why do you worry about money? Some of you have worried about money in the last 24 hours. Why do you worry about money if God's got everything and you're his? Why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry about tomorrow? Jesus says tomorrow can worry about itself. You're God's children. Why do you worry about clothes? Haven't you seen the flowers of the field and how beautifully adorned they are? Doesn't God care for you a lot more than he cares for flowers? You don't, we, we don't live this way. <laughs> Why? The answer is because we're not experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, let me just call a spade a spade. We're in a Baptist church, a majority white Baptist church, and I just talked about experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So some of you started squirming a little bit internally when I said that. If you could see your all's faces when I preach, then you would appreciate that even more. Uh, (laughs) Paul's talking about an experience with the Holy Spirit. Look at the text. He says, God sent his spirit into our hearts, not into our minds, into our hearts, the the center, the core of our being. And what does he do when he's there? Does he reason with us? Does he say, remember now, you're a son of God. You don't need to worry about this because you're a son of God. No, he cries out. That the Greek word that's translated cry or cry out there is used several times in the Bible. Here are a few other examples. I want you to just listen for what you hear in common. Matthew 20, 30, there were two blind men sitting by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 27, 50, on the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. James 5, 4, a bit of a different context, it says, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ear of the Lord of armies. What do all these have in common? Emotion. This is, this is an emotional, experiential reality. The Spirit doesn't just tell you you are a son. He cries, Dad. This is, this is me coming home from work and my one-year-old and my three-year-old running and crawling to the door and saying, Dad has home. This is what the Spirit does in our hearts. God did not just want us to have the status of sonship through his son. He wanted us to have the experience of it through a spirit who dwells in our hearts. Doug Moo, in his commentary on Galatians, puts it this way. He says, Paul uses a word picture to convey the deep and emotional reaction within the believer's heart to the joyful conviction brought by God's spirit that we are indeed God's sons. Martin Luther says, when we hear the external word, the gospel, we receive a certain fervor and internal light by which we are moved. We receive a new way to discern, a new feeling, and new emotions. This change and this new judgment is due not to the work of reason or the power of man, but it is the gift and the working of the Holy Spirit that comes with the preaching of the word that purifies our hearts through faith and awakens in us a new spiritual motive. Has this experience happened to you? Have you had the experience of the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Look, I know the dangers of emotionalism. 
let's just be honest, I don't think we have that problem here. <laughs> Has this happened in your life? If not, if you're not experiencing this, there's two possibilities, I think, why. The first is that you might not be a Christian. Maybe you know that. Maybe you're here this morning, you're self-consciously not a Christian. Or maybe you've always thought of yourself as a Christian, and you're hearing these sermons from Galatians and reading the Bible, and you're thinking, okay, this like justification by faith and not by works, and my performance doesn't make God like me more, and I don't need to feel guilty when I mess up. Like This feels new to me. It feels like something different than what I understood as the gospel. Listen, I have no desire to ever make a Christian question their salvation. But I also don't want to miss the opportunity if somebody is here and the gospel has not yet really taken a hold of their heart to just encourage you to consider if it might be the case that the Christianity that you have been operating in is not what the Bible gives us. Far more likely is that you are a Christian, but you're not in this season walking in intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Um, I've, I've been listening on and off through this series through Galatians to Tim Keller's sermons from 1999 from Galatians. I try not to listen to too many other preachers when I'm preparing. Um, one, I try to wait until I've already basically written my sermon because I don't want to end up just accidentally copying what somebody else says. But I just appreciated his frankness with his congregation at this point. He said, you're not experiencing this. Are you praying? Do you pray? Do you spend uninterrupted time praying with God and not just, not just asking him for stuff? Not just telling him everything that's wrong in your life, but actually reflecting on him. Just praying and talking to him about his beauty and his glory and his grace and his kindness and his power and his holiness and his love. Do you spend time just thanking him for how he's loved you and saved you in the gospel, just reflecting on his absolutely undeserved and unmerited grace and favor in your life? Does your prayer time look more like a meeting with your boss when you've dropped the ball on a job and you sit and feel bad about yourself and hear from your boss about all the things that you're not doing well and you leave saying, I'll try harder? Or does your prayer time feel like a doctor's appointment? You say, there's pain here, there's pain here, there's pain here. Can you give me something for the pain? Or does your prayer time uh, feel like you have a handyman at your house and you're saying, I need this fixed, I need this fixed, I need this fixed, I need this fixed, and I'll pay you a little bit to do it, but I need you to fix all this stuff in my life, in my house. There's nothing wrong with walking away from prayer feeling convicted and challenged to change something in your life. There's nothing wrong with taking your pain to God. You should do that. There's nothing wrong with even asking him to change some of your circumstances. But your prayer time ought to feel more like an anniversary dinner with your spouse, where you're just telling God how beautiful and wonderful he is and how thankful you are for his attributes and his actions in your life, what he's done for you. You're saying the past has been amazing with you. The present is awesome. I can't wait to see what the future holds with you. Your prayer time ought to look more like you've thrown a birthday party for your best friend or for your kid, and you're just showering love and celebration on God. Where does this start? How do you do this? It starts with prayerfully meditating on the gospel, <laughs> and then continuing to do so, and then pressing in further. I can tell you, like, 
I don't know if you all have this experience. I have the experience where sometimes there's just this invisible block that keeps me from wanting to pray or that keeps me from getting past the perfunctory, here's what I need help with today, prayers. But I can also tell you that there's never been a time in my life where I have pressed through that and persevered in prayer and God has not met me on the other side of that. There's never been a time where I've prayed for five or 10 or 20 minutes and walked away and thought that was a waste of time. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I could have been more productive if I'd done something else. We can do this by simply praying the Bible back to God. If you say, look, this is my personality, you can ask my wife. I'm not, uh, I don't talk a lot about my day. I'm not just very verbose in terms of like even giving compliments and things like that. So it can help to have a script. So just open up the Bible this week and go back to this passage and say, God, it is amazing that by grace through faith, I've been clothed with Christ. Thank you. Thank you for unity with him and with all other people who are also in him. Thank you, God, that I belong to Christ and I'm an heir according to the promise. Thank you that I'm your child. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world to redeem me from the conviction and and condemnation of the law. Thank you for sending your spirit into my heart. Just pray these things back to God. Let the Bible read you and expose your heart and give it back to God in prayer. And as you do, as you persevere in this, in those moments, God gives us this deep soul level experience where our hearts are all of a sudden or maybe just gradually flooded with the knowledge of the reality that I am God's. I'm God's child. He is my father. I am loved by him infinitely. I have everything that I need. And that is my reward. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward.